Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about digital media production. And our second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today we have an incredible collection of NDI experts coming on for the second hour. And they'll be talking about workflows. And so if you've got questions about NDI workflows, this is going to be a great second hour for that. We've got a lot of questions stacking up for the NDI workflows. So uh, make sure to get your questions in early um, and make sure to vote on those questions rigorously <laughs> because there's going to be a lot of there's going to be a lot of um, uh there's going to be a lot of a lot of questions. So really look at those questions carefully. Make sure that the, the ones that you really care about are pushed to the front because I don't know if we'll get to the bottom of the of the basket today. So so um, definitely throw those in. And of course, remember to throw those in for the um, for the first hour right now. Bill, what do we got? Our first one comes from Mitch Hill in Wilmington, Delaware. Mitch asks, the geniuses at Angry Audio have come up with a mic preamp slash processor that's matched to the Shure SM7 series of microphones. It just may have the best room tone eliminator I've heard, plus it has a mute switch. Discuss, and he's got a link there to it. Uh, go ahead, Jason. Uh, I don't think I'm on oh, that sorry. One. I was in the wrong one. I was in the wrong column. Paul, go ahead. Imagine your voice dipped in butter, Mitchell, and this <laughs> this was their their tagline on their website and uh, smooth SM. I'm not sure if they're referring to the old SM mic or the new SM7B. I'm sure it's, it's the interesting. SM7B. It's a this is a specific device that's nine hundred eighty nine dollars designed Ouch. specifically for that mic. I wonder if it would work, Alex. If it would work with a uh, MV7 with the uh, yeah, I don't know. attachment. I, what's interesting XLR about it is, is it's, it's an interesting model. Um, is It is easier. So the the, the noise reduction that, we, that I use, which, which of course is the noise assist on sound device, a lot of us have those uh, in place, is a generalized noise reduction because so it just, it looks at what's there and then it gets rid of it. What it looks like Angry Audio has done is pinpointed, we're just going to test this one mic and make sure that it absolutely makes this mic sound better um, or get rid of that room noise. I, I, it'll be a really specialized need um, to, um, uh, they, they have a version coming out also for uh, the, um, the RE20, so that'd be good for people doing radio. So anyway, it's, it's, it's an interesting model because it is easier to do it that way, is to say, I'm going to match this. It's just harder for us as users to know that we're, we have to use that mic to get the most out of it because it probably won't work as well for all the other mics. So because it's really, they're tuning it for that mic's characteristics. It's a really interesting approach to it. And obviously, they're going to aim at the, 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 the mics with the most uh, coverage. It'd be really interesting to get a test of that and see if it really stacks up to what we're used to. Next question. Next question comes to us from John Foltz in Ceilings Grove, Pennsylvania. And John says, I'm a Mac user. I just installed vMix on a new PC for sports productions. vMix has a built-in web controller and it's set up correctly. But the firewall or something on the PC is blocking the connection to the IP port. How can I fix that problem? Go, Jeffrey. Well, the, if you haven't put any type of antivirus or any any extra software on, then the the program that you want to get is uh, is Windows Defender. Windows Defender. Once you open that up, you'll have the option to just turn it straight off. 
um, I would turn it off and then I would run the program and see what happens uh, from there, of course, uh, make sure that you're in a well-protected area when you do that. Uh, but once that happens, then you can go into Windows Defender and you can go for the specific vMix uh, protocols and you can just remove them. And then what happens is the next time you open up vMix, it'll ask you the question, uh, do you want this to be on a public or a private network? And then you'll be, uh, you'll be able to go from there. Good, Paul. You may need to look for port forwarding on your router. Next question. Next question comes to us from Douglas Carmichael. And Douglas says, David mentioned an LED volume as a large curved wall. Wouldn't most LED manufacturers make files as squares, not curved shapes? Yeah, so it, which, the tiles, yeah, they make the tile square. They are square. So, well, there, there are curved ones. The hard part, if you make a curved one, is you're defining the curve, right? So you have to say, well, this is the concave nature. Now you can only have it be at a certain circular. And there are some that do that. So they are very, they are designed, sometimes they're designed to go around a, um, a cylinder. And that cylinder is exactly a meter in diameter or two meters in diameter. Um, but they, and, and those, they do make them curved um, to make that actually happen. And they fit very, very nicely into that puzzle. The problem is, is that that is the only curve that will work uh, if you do that. So typically what they do is they, they make them flat panels and then and it's basically faceted if you get close to it. So it's not when, when it's a giant curve. You got to remember this is a, a huge curve. But what what's, what what you're actually looking at is you know it's not like this with really big tiles. It's more like you know there's these little tiles, and as they as each one of these is straight, but it's building that curve out like you would do making a curve building with bricks. You know it's it's they're all the bricks are still straight, but you're doing it over a very long curve that goes around it. So they still are. And what one of the things that's made that possible is they've gone from having um, basically one foot by one foot tiles down to these little ten centimeter tiles, which are much smaller than the. Um, so they're they're a little less than six inches, and so these little these little tiles, um, and that means that the the iteration of that curve can happen more often, which allows them to create um, better curves uh, across those those backgrounds. Um, but yeah, there and it does limit the the pitch as well. So. For instance, on a flat curve, we might try to get an LED wall that's a 0.9 pitch, um, you know, 0.9 millimeter pitch. But usually uh, what we see on these larger LED walls that we see in these big spaces is something closer to 2.3, 2.6, 3.2 uh, So the spaces have to be b bigger between the LEDs. Otherwise, um, they run into each other <laughs> when you curve them. So uh, it, it affects the curve. So you, those are the things you have to kind of think about. But they are flat um, generally uh, when they go out so that you have more more places to work with it. And it's, it's pretty exciting. Uh, next question. Next one comes from Alexander Knight in Port Coquitlam, British Columbia, Canada. Is it possible to cascade multiple actions together with Apple shortcuts? For example, using Zoom cuts, I'd like one button that triggers not only a user rename, but also turns on original sound and also unmutes. I go ahead, Oliver. Yeah, of course you can. Uh, the shortcuts app allows you to add multiple shortcuts, uh, multiple commands, and create a script, basically, um, that allows you to um, perform multiple actions in a, in, uh, in a cascade. So very yeah, easy. The, uh, we had a, a, a guardian angel saw that question uh, and sent me a photo that, that might be useful for you. Um, so here's the... Here's the shortcut that you're looking for. Um, uh, so this is the shortcut you're looking for. So that there you can see that it's uh, that's inside of the action of um, original sound for musicians. You can turn on high fidelity echo cancellation stereo, and and there's the um, so those that's the shortcut you're that you probably are looking for made just for you, Alexander. 
the great. Um, so, uh, so anyway, that was, uh, we had a, uh, one of our, one of our, um, uh, partners in, in the, in the system of synthesizers. So thank you very much for that. Go ahead, Jason. I'm not sure what I can add to that other than you can also always modularize it and use shortcuts to launch a, a series of shortcuts. So what any combination that you need, you can get. Next question. Next question comes to us from Garrick Parmalee in Columbia. Uh, no, Columbia, it looks like. But I might be wrong about that. It might be a typo. What is the current consensus on high-quality mic arms for podcasting? We produce seven podcasts where I work, and our mic arms get a lot of use and are starting to break or wear out. Go, Jason. Um, well, I'm not sure if there is consensus, but if there was consensus, then um, it would probably be this one. OC White is far and away, I think, the very best of, of mic arms. The nice thing about this one is if you've got multiples, you can attach multiple points and have multiple mic arms with a roundtable discussion. If you don't want to spend $330 for a mic arm, that makes sense. Elgato has a $100 version. Um, the top parts are magnetically attached, which is a little bit annoying, but um, yeah, it, it gets the job done. Yeah, I'm going to second the Elgato. Um, I'm just trying to find you. I think I have a photo of one of them here from a, from a podcasting rig. Let's see. Um, so this is, uh, this is one that I didn't build, but we, that we, that we saw <laughs> that, that was there. Um, and, uh, let me see if I can pull this out here. Um, so here you can kind of see them in a, this is, this is for a podcast here. So you can see these are the El Elgato arms. So what you're seeing here are, uh, the Elgato arms with the SM7Bs, um, under here, this is like basically they've attached a, that's a studio. Uh, it's much like the 205 that I have that you can turn things, your mic, mic turn on and off. So, um, pretty good, um, pretty good setup. And this is definitely in, a, in an environment where, uh, the money was not the, not, not the issue. So, so you see those there, but what's nice about the low, whether it's the Elgato or the, or the, um, OC white is that they're underslung. So you can, for cameras, we can see them, we can see over them, you know, and, uh, the advantage that the, um, that I have both the Elgato and the and the OC White, and I find that the advantage of the OC White is it's a little bit it's more flexible. It's got more vertical control and an extra joint, um, and so that helps considerably for me to put it in. So the the OC White is something that I've used. I sent that's what I send out. I'm not going to send send out the uh, OC White, but what I use in my studio is the OC White. So those are the ones that I think that are. I haven't used the Elgato enough to know whether it's. Um, how durable it is, but I can tell you that I use the OC White every day. I've been using it for two years, and it is pretty much the same as it was when I started. Um, next question. John Fisher in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, is our next questioner. Does the panel think Apple will announce a new Apple TV during their September 12th event? Go ahead, Chris. Um, who knows? You know, they might. Uh, I just bought one, and I'm really, I, uh, a couple last week, I think I talked about some of that audio stuff about how you can force your um, uh, home pods to be your default speakers and they will work. Um, they will broadcast other things. It is working. Uh, it's the, I don't know if they're going to be a new one, but even if there is, is the math of it, if you look at Mac rumors, the current um, Apple TV is only like 300 days old, 320 days old, so it probably won't be a new one. But the current new one is actually really good. I wouldn't worry about buying it. I go, Jeffrey. 
Yeah, uh, so Wonderlust is the name of the event, and Wonderlust means uh, to travel. So I don't think you really travel too much with an Apple TV. You travel with your phone, you travel with your, your tablets. Uh, so I'm guessing that this is going to be more about mobility than it is about, uh, about something like TV. Not impossible, but probably not likely. Go, Jason. Unless they need to do something, unless they need to augment something that, that would be required for the Vision Pro, the Apple TV is one of the most feature-complete things in Apple's line. Good, Paul. Too much stuff going on already. No, they won't. <laughs> Go ahead, Bill. I suspect that since uh, Jeffrey just mentioned this is connected to Wanderlust, which is the RVers thing, I would imagine this would be a perfect thing for somebody who's going to be a mobile in a kind of a RV situation where you're going from place to place because there is a lot of intelligence built into the Apple TV and in terms of being able to snap onto all sorts of your feeds, hold things and play them back at will. It's a great system for that. Yeah, I, I will say that I, I, I'm using actually not the newest one. I'm using the one behind it because I was testing the newer one for something else and never got out of it. I mean, it's still in the test bed um, for something else I'm doing. So uh, so I bought it and then I kind of got ready to use it. I was like, oh, I got to test it over here and didn't. So I'm one whole behind uh, on this on this thing and mine works perfectly the same. <laughs> like it, I don't know what app, when Apple adds something, I'm always like, you know, they send a new controller, which I actually like the old controller. So I, I know that most people like the new controller. I'm, I, uh, I know I just made Chris very upset. I hate all the buttons. Like, I don't even like the buttons that are on the, the newer one. I like the one that had no buttons or the one menu um, because I got very good at it. I've been, the only thing I've used since it was released is the Apple TV. So I'm used to all the little things and I can scroll around with that. And I'm always like, now I have to figure out while I'm in, while it's dark, I have to figure out which button I'm pushing. I hate it hate it. So I hate that. I hate the new, uh, like before it was just, I just knew how to work with the top part of it. And I hate having to figure out what button am I pushing to get some operation. It's so annoying. Yes, Chris. My, my biggest complaint about the new controller is that the upper part, whereas it is a left, right, up, down, and a center click, it also behaves like the old controller. If you just Lightly wiggle your thumb over it. It's like, whoa, 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 I didn't push the button. I, I wish you could turn that feature off. Otherwise, I think this thing is much better. It, 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 it's heavier, so it feels more substantial in your hand. Yeah, I don't need that. It's, it's better. <laughs> the one thing I will you're say so, is if you're so, there's very few times I can say that you're wrong about something, Alex. You're so wrong about this. <laughs> I'm willing to The one wrong. thing I will say is if you have an Apple TV, you have to have either a phone or an iPad because trying to put uh, two-factor authentication characters in with that little thumb controller is a nightmare. Well, you need I, to get I, a bigger server so you can type something. I will say that I, I um, it's, it's the big thing. It's, the Apple TV is actually why I fight so hard and say that on Mac break and say, I don't want anybody to control, have another store for the, for the phone is because I don't want to figure out all the, you know, with Apple TV, there's a handful of apps that I have to put my, my email into and I have to put my little password in and I get angry every time I do it. Like literally, I'm like, do I really need to be here? Like, do I need to use this app? Every time I turn it on, I'm like, you guys, you know, um, you, you know, and so, um, next question. Next question comes from Ed McElroy in Galveston, Texas. And Ed says, I'm trying Thanks, to Bob. color. Bob, Bob, Oh, Bob, I'm sorry. I was trying to read out the small one before it mm -hmm. cycled. Uh, Bob, I apologize. I'm trying to color match three different cameras, two Canon and one Blackmagic. Is there a specific color card and method I should use for best results? 
Yeah, so it depends on whether your cannons will take LUTs or not. So if your cannon, your black magic will, um, but you you have to be you have to think about whether you can apply a LUT to your camera. And if you can't, you can get some black magic boxes that will allow you to load. There's a variety of different converters that will allow you to load a LUT in line um, into that process. And so what you want to do is you want to get a it can be it can be anything. Um, uh, any kind of color chart. This is the little one that I have that I kind of carry around in my bag. If I can open it up. So this is a little uh, X-Rite, you know, color chart here. You can shoot with this. I, when I'm doing production, I use a, Demont, a Chroma Demon chart, um, um, a 24R uh, Chroma Demon chart. It's just, it covers all the gamut that I need uh, with what I'm doing. But you can use that little one as well. Or X-Rite makes another one that's, um, that is a, or Calibrite, I think now. It makes a video one that works well. So you get that. Shoot it with all the cameras. Get them as close as you can and then shoot them all, uh, shoot all the cameras and then take them into Resolve. And what you're going to do is you're going to get one camera to be exactly the way you want it with a LUT or with a, whatever. And, and that shouldn't be on a color chart. That should be on a person. Make sure the skin tones are exactly what you want. Make sure the background looks the way, it, way you want. Get it all set up. Then then what you want to do is is take that, um, you go in, you take that, you, you build, you take that as the base and then you take the second camera and you shoot that chart it, you want to shoot it as closely framed to the first one as possible. The easiest way to do this is to use a switcher, run it through a switcher so that you can see the two of them, you can blend them together and you get the framing just perfect. And then, and then you shoot that one and then you take that into resolve. And what you're going to do is you're going to, uh, you're going to open up and start building a, building a color LUT with resolve until, and, the, and you set the, the new one over top of the old one, set its uh, layer to difference. So it'll show you the difference of between the two. And then you start tweaking it until it turns black. And it, when, it's, when it's black, except for some of the like little edges that it's not on, when you load that LUT into that camera or into something in line, um, it, would, it, it will match. You know, it'll, it'll tighten, tighten that solution. And you just do that with each camera and they should look identical. Um, and they will look generally identical through different color spaces. I mean, through different white balances and so on and so forth. Not color spaces, but white balances. So that's the, that's the, that's the, the most, it takes a while. Like it takes, you should give yourself a half an hour to an hour per camera. Like it's not, it's not something that this is, and how has to be in a, in a controlled environment. So if you're, if you're at a, a venue, you have to have a tent. Uh, if you're somewhere else, you have to have a room. You can't have the light changing or nothing's going to work. So, so you really have to do that. What would be really cool, since LUTs aren't that hard to calculate, is if we could persuade Oliver to just put LUTs on inputs um, as they go into Memo Live. That would be really cool. Just, just saying. Just, you know, because they are, they are. You have LUTs. You can, I, you can apply LUTs in Memo Live. Yes. Yes. What? What? I didn't even, how have you, how I use Memo Live for so long and not know it. So you can apply a LUT to any input. Yep. And, and how many, how many points? Uh, Two times in one day. Alex was wrong. I know. I know. (laughs) I I think it just, what's funny is I just never, I just, I never, it never occurred to me that I could apply a LUT to an input on us on a software switcher. Well, um, you should give it a try and then let me know if it works any, any, Anything near what you wanted yeah. to do. So Yeah, that's great. That's amazing. Okay, I'll, I'll test it. I'll test it. Um, maybe over the weekend. Uh, next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Nightstand mode on iOS 17 is kind of magical. I tried it last night. Pop your phone onto a charging dock, turn it into landscape mode, and then a series of superbly crafted screens glow when you reach toward it. Comments? Uh, real quick, Paul. This is what it looks like in the daytime. At night, it does look magical. It's glowing. <laughs> you you take your hand okay. and just wave it in front of okay. it. 
and it it comes alive. There you go. There you go. Um, uh, a quick reminder, of course, you can ask questions for the first hour. I, I would really focus your voting on the second hour. The second hour has got a lot of questions already. But you can, if you want to throw a question into the mix, you can. Um, but uh, but go ahead and ask. If you have other questions for the first hour, go ahead and throw them in now. Uh, make sure to vote on the questions so that we know which ones you want us to answer next. And, uh, and we'll get to as many as we can. All right, let's go ahead into the next question. Next question comes to us from Douglas Carmichael, and Douglas says, David mentioned rear projection as a common method of creating background plates. Is it challenging to match the brightness of multiple projectors on the same screen and sync the projectors to the camera? I go ahead, uh, Jeffrey. He, well, it, yeah, depending on what kind of cameras, what kind of projectors you have, and what type of room that you have for there. I tried doing that with, uh, you need some high nits uh, to do, especially in a studio situation where there's a lot of lights uh, coming through. Uh, and then, of course, a, a good F, uh, darker background uh, that you can really project it on. But I think that it, it you really need to have the right equipment, and you can't, you can't just get consumer projectors to do it. Uh, go ahead, Jason. Yes, it's really hard, and that's why it's so exciting to do stuff like, you know, large LED back walls to, to eliminate that junk. Hey, go ahead, Chris. What's amazing today is how actually easy it is compared to the way it used to be. I, mean, I can remember watching people match projectors 30 years ago and they would have to wait till the entire show was uh, rehearsal was over and then kick everybody out. And it would take the guys hours to match projectors. Uh, it still it, does. I mean, to match projectors, it's still a, it's a, a, a long process. You know, like, you know, the, the guys will send, spend to match projectors, especially ones that are blending together. And I'm not talking necessarily for backup, back, um, for, uh, for this, but I'm talking about in, if you go to an event, Chris and I go to events and we see these these big blends. So they're using something like Resolume or Watch Out or you know a variety of other things, and they're gonna they're gonna map out a 32 by nine or a 64 by nine or a you know something like that. Those are all projectors. You know, a lot of times, I mean, the LED would be very cost prohibitive, and uh, putting LEDs behind uh, people it you know, would be hot. A 200 foot wide heater. I've seen it. Seen it? I know. Yeah. So, um, and, and it's it is it, they do get warm, um, and uh, so I mean, if you look at some of the Apple events, those are those are really nice LEDs. Like if you get up close to one of those, they're really nice and they're really big. Um, and uh, but the it the um, but a lot of them have been projectors. I went to a, a Google event and I you know I couldn't help but count the projectors and it was there was and the and the funny thing is they pair the projectors up so the, the so it's not just that you have let's say ten projectors that are going down because what Google did is they built one that uh, was like it was like the audiences in here and they built one that went like this all you know so it gave you this kind of immersive thing but that means they have to have a projector you know, like this projectors all through and they, and, and when I'm to be more accurate, they're more like this. And then there's another one and they have to cross over there like that. Right. So they're all crossing over like that. So that this is their blend point um, that you're talking about there. And yes, to, to answer Douglas's question, that takes days for them to get that done. You know, so mm -hmm. in this case, the other thing is they stack them, they stack them over top of each other. Um, and the reason they do that, and then they have to, so they have to basically blend the two, the two, first the two projectors to each other. Well, actually, they blend them t around, and then they blend the top and bottom. But they have to get both of that blended out. And the reason they use two projectors is number one is it's a backup. If one projector goes bad, 
it'll just get darker. It won't go away. Um, and then the second thing, and the second uh, uh, thing is that that it gets a lot brighter. So the projector can get a lot brighter to do these. And these are typically, you know, 20, 25,000 lumen projectors. These are not what you have at home. <laughs> so and, and anyway, and, and I know one company that does four projectors, you know, for one image to get it as bright as it possible. And then it looks like an LED um, and it's super smooth um, before they moved to LEDs. And so the, um, so anyway, but you have all of that there. And the thing you don't think about until you do that is how many fans there'll be, um, you know, and yeah. so it's, it really then for us, um, the mic issues become, you know, you have labs and you have this just incredible amount of fans that are going on that you don't notice until you're there trying to work with the mics and you're like, oh, this is, this is, you know, there's a lot of fans. And, um, and so, uh, and that's why they use, that's why you see a lot of WL 184s and 185s, which are these Shures, they're like, they look like a big capsule and they sit on there because that's got a lot of off-axis rejection. They tend not to pick up as much, but, they, but if, then if they get tugged, they turn sideways and you can't, you can't hear anything. So anyway, so the, um, uh, so the, so what they do is they have a grid and there's this, this really fine grid that goes out in the, on the projectors and they use that grid to, they have to, and they, they have a controller that lets them, I mean, it is m sub pixel movement of those projectors that goes down because they have to do a couple things. They have to corner pin it perfectly and they have to line it up vertically and, and horizontally perfectly. And sometimes they even have to bulge it perfectly to get it just right to get all of those and, and all those thin lines have to line up for each projector to make that actually work. And it's a, it's an incredibly, you know, I, I only see it happening while I'm working, but I just watch, I just watch them just slowly, you know, kind of pulling those things together. Um, and then when they're done, I get to do whatever I'm going to do, <laughs> but, but I, I don't, but I watch it for sometimes for days, definitely for at least a day for some of these more complex ones um, to get the projectors all lined up. Now, to go back to your question specifically, um, one thing is is that almost nobody's using rear projection anymore. Like it's it is so so hard. The thing that gets you with rear projection, it turns out, is um, that you get a bright you get a bright light here, and then it fades out. You know, so you get this vignetting that goes on, and you have to be so far away from that screen to get rid of that vignetting. And and so the vignetting is the real thing that kills you with projection, and it's really really hard to set up. And it's not worth it anymore because the LEDs and the green screen, if you're going green screen, you have more control later. So you're not burning it into the into the image. So the green screen is great if you don't know what you're going to put back there. And if you know what you're going to put back there and you want to commit to it, the LEDs are so much more powerful. You get inter what you saw yesterday. You get interactive light. You get all the things that you want to have. You get all these things that are there. And it's just a really um, such a such a smooth experience um, that no one's using. I mean, unless they're trying to go retro or something and doing something weird, no one uses rear projection anymore. Uh, Jeffrey, real quick. Two things uh, really quick. Uh, yeah, LED lights are over CFLs have have made it a little bit easier. And then, of course, when you do rear projection and you're doing it outside, you're going to be dealing with bugs and you don't want to have something landing yeah. on the lens as you're going. Yeah, but yeah, it's, it's just a, it's just a really, if you're doing true rear projection for movies, which no one does anymore, unless, again, unless they're doing, rec, unless they're trying to be retro. Um, next question. Next question comes to us from Andy Kokendorfer in Vera, Florida. And Andy says, which VPN, virtual private network service, do you find the most reliable and easy to use? John? Use Proton on my PC. It runs fantastic. It launches uh, when the machine starts up and it runs like a champ. They've got services. I use the free version. They've got servers all over the world. So if I need to log in remotely to watch NFL games, I can do that. No problem. <laughs> what do you think of the price of the ticket? 
Did you, did you see the price? I'm getting ready. To, I was getting ready to buy the ticket, and I, I haven't gotten myself up to spending three hundred dollars on the ticket. That's I'm not going to the show, but I'm going to pay twenty dollars. It's basically pay per view at twenty dollars a show. I guess if you watch a lot of football, like if you're going to watch it all Sunday, it wouldn't be that bad. But if you're trying to just watch your team, um, it seems like it seems really high. I was just like probably going to do it, but I'm like as a Steeler fan, I've never had a year where I could just watch everything at home you know, um, at high quality. And so I'll probably do it, but it's just, I, I keep on looking at the price just going, Oh, really? I go ahead, Bill. A long time ago, I adopted something called IP vanish, which is a simple little one. I can't even remember how much it cost me, but it's been working fine for Mm -hmm. years now. There you go, Jason. Whichever one you choose, just remember that if you don't pay for a service, you are the product. Do not get free VPN. None of them work. They're all junk. Yeah, and and again, the other question is, why are you using VPN? So are you trying to hide an IP or are you trying to just have a secure connection? If you're trying to do a secure connection, think really hard about building your own VPN in there. So you didn't say the cheapest, you just said, which do we find the most reliable and easy to use? And I will go back to what we use as a Meraki system. And so that can be loaded onto a computer. Um, It can be loaded onto mobile, I believe. I I haven't done that. Um, But... With the computer, that means that I just go down and say VPN. Now, I'm not VPNing. I'm not doing anything to hide. So Vanish is what actually I use when I'm trying to hide Vanish uh, uh, VPN because then I can define my server being in India or something. I do exactly the same reason that, that uh, John does it, which is to watch NFL football games. I, I pay for it. I pay for the NFL ticket, but I, I just don't want to get blacked out. So um, so I use random countries to do that rather than Europe or the U.S. So Vanish, uh, uh, Vanish, I, is Vanish VPN or Vanish I? IP, um, uh, yeah, I, IP vanish. But when I'm just trying to be secure in my communication at a hotel room, at a, at a something like I use, I use the Meraki system because I have it on my laptop and I just turn it on. Now that's going through, that's passing my packets through my office. So um, it's it's a uh, uh, and and it's wrapped, so it's cleaner. So you just got to decide what you're using the VPN for. Um, next question. Next question comes to us from Ronnie Hofsoy in uh, Tromsø, Norway. Ronnie says, do Mimo Live have any way to do video follow audio? Let's say we need we feed 16 channels of auto-mixed audio via USB and then let Mimo Live decide what camera angle to switch to. What's needed around Mimo Live to achieve something like this audio follows video? Obviously, people have realized that Oliver's here. <laughs> More Mimo, if you have Mimo Live questions, this is a good one. Anyway, Oliver, go ahead. That's good. That's good. Uh, before I answer that, I just wanted to show you the color lookup stuff and what you can do yeah. with this. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm definitely going to check um, it out. It's 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 really. I, I I realized as soon as I as soon as you said that, I was like, all switchers should have that. You should be able to apply a lot to every switcher. I mean, every input to every switcher. It totally make it would totally make many of our lives easier. It's really interesting. Anyway, go ahead, go ahead, Oliver. Yeah, you can also um, apply that not only to cameras, but any video inputs. Yeah, like no, it's great. Video files it's so good. Stuff. It's really, yeah. really interesting. That's what you get if you if, if camera input is just another type of graphics. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so to answer the question, so we have a layer called uh, Visual Radio right now, um, which allows you, which is made basically for radio stations to allow them to automatically switch. Um, uh you know if they have a guest in the studio and uh, the the uh and 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 the moderator and the guest have a discussion or something um and 
but we are working on adding this functionality to the general video switcher layer. So um, you may you will be able to switch up to nine sources with uh, uh, according to what's in the audio. The difficulty is a little bit um, how do you uh, what's the what's what's the mechanism that decides which audio to show if there's more than one person talking. So um, you know this is this is going to be like a little bit difficult. Yeah, we what what we did for so we built some software for um, Hangouts on Air. Um, this is when they had it when they had an API, and the way we did it is um, it was it was actually pretty. Like, Google kept on thinking, "Why don't we send some engineers up to talk to you?" Because they couldn't figure out why these shows look so good. And so they're trying to figure this out, and because our, all of our shows were switching really nicely, and what we did is we learned. Uh, it took me a little while to figure it out, and we haven't done it for this show yet. But I learned that a human uh, guiding a machine produced the best show. So a human explicitly cutting is slow and the machine is too twitchy. You know, it, jump, it jumps all over the place really quickly. So, so what we did is we had it, we first we tied all, we had all the ties to the ed edit out to hardware. So we were using like this, I think it's called a BSC 2000 or 1000. It's like a hardware thing from Behringer that's not made anymore and we had a bunch of them. And we could control the audio just with faders. They're motorized faders. That's why we use that. And then we had little buttons on the top, and we, we could just cut the show by t tapping on those buttons. The other thing that we did, though, is that we, we could cut it, but we had what we called soft clicking. And so what we could do is we could soft click, uh, like let's say, let's say that you got 10, because a lot of our shows were eight or 10 people. We could soft click two people. These people who are talking, it will not cut between anyone other than those two. Like it just says, if I soft select or soft select, we would soft select them. So we had another row of buttons that I could soft select and they'd turn. So I, I could look down and see the colors of which ones were soft selected. But it could be these two or the, and you could add at any point, oh, I'm going to add this one to it. And if I tapped it again, it would take them out of the mix. And so I could sit there and in a group of people of, of eight or 10, I could sit there and just say, it's only bouncing between these, these ones here. Um, so that made it easier for the algorithm to work. And then it was looking for the the loudest person, obviously. Um, so just looking for the loudest one to, to jump to, but it had a couple rules. One is I had little encoders at the t on that piece of hardware that basically I could set the attack. So different, I could, I could individually set the attack for every single person as it was doing the auto switch. So it said like, this person makes a lot of noise. So set the attack really, you know, set its, its sensitivity to that person and when it's going to attack to a much um, less sensitive setting where this other person is a little quiet. So set that one a little bit more aggressively. And so I could tune that for each person. And then I could also tune overall, what's my minimum edit um, speed. So basically it said, when I turned it, I said, I can only, I don't want it to do, I never want you to cut faster than two seconds, you know, or 1.8 seconds or 2.3 seconds. And so it would never flutter. It would always, it would always, and that was something like at the end of the show, we would turn that down. And so everyone goes, bye, bye, bye. And you see all this flickering and it gave it a little energy. So we realized we had lost that by turning that on. So we put it as a variable so we could just turn it down and, and let everybody just, just kind of bounce around. But we didn't want that during the show. Um, anyway, so those are the tools that we put into it. They are still like someday we'll put them into office hours. They're still, it still produced the best shows we've ever made. You know, like the, it was just this smooth kind of, um, you know, flow of, of show that, and the editor didn't do a lot. Um, you know, we had to explicitly throw it in when we threw graphics in or playback. And, um, and by the time we started getting good at in integrating those, they get rid of the API. <laughs> so all that work went, went into, the, into the drink. Anyway, Oliver, that's, that's my request. For, oh, for yeah. Okay. Th thank so thank we'll, you we'll very much. I think, 
I think you gave me a lot of ideas. Uh, Good. And let's see see what we can we, we can do with that. Well, I'm ready to test it and and, and complain about it. That's what I do best. Uh, next question. Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas, up next. X, formerly Twitter, is adding voice and video calls. What do you expect these to be like, and who are they competing with? I'll go ahead, Paul, real quick. Yeah, Facebook or Meta Messenger, it's going to be really tough because Facebook has an appliance called the Portal, and people use it. It's so easy to use. It's going to be really tough, and especially if they restrict it to their blue, what do, what do they call them, Alex? Blue something users? Yeah, that's about 0.3% of their population. I think they'll keep on adding fake features for the blue. <laughs> Next question. John Apetitos, it looks like, in Sydney, Australia. Or, or, I'm sorry, Gaptos, uh, Sydney, Australia. I have an office network of 15 Macs and would like the staff to log into any machine and have their files followed so roaming profiles. I successfully did this way back in XServe days, but it's not supported anymore. Can anyone offer another solution? Uh, go ahead, Oliver. Yeah, I'm not sure what he means by it's not supported anymore because um, I can show you this here with, I uh, just go to the system settings. Oh, I have the wrong file up here. System settings, users and groups, and just select the network account server, which is down here, and enter any um, Active Directory or, or uh, LDAP account server. And it's basically um, defining the um, location for the home directories in that um, directory server, which allows you then to log in on any Mac that is joined to that um, system. Go ahead, Jason. Only thing I can add to that is it's much easier to have a unified file system if if you start with an LDAP server and then map dynamically to a NAS so that you're not having to to use your network excessively for 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 that kind of lift. Go, Jeffrey. Look up directory utility. That's going to be the main thing. The other thing you can do is on any Mac, if you if they're on the network, you go to go, you go to connect to server, and then you do a VNC into a space. So if your machine is over in a different office, then you could actually remote into that machine. That might be a good alternative. Next question. Douglas Carmichael says, Jeffrey, what portable monitors do you like best? I've been admiring the UPerfect 4K range, but I'm open, open to others. Go, Jeffrey. I'm unfamiliar with the UPerfect line, but uh, the one thing that I find, especially if you're using a Mac, is if you've got a touchscreen on there and you want to specifically use the touchscreen, it's really touch and go, pun intended. Uh, it's, there, last week, I, I, have, I use the ViewSonic... This is the ViewSonic TD1655 portable monitor. The reason why I like this so much is the one, the one thing that the other portable monitors don't have is actually a kickstand. Every other monitor is this origami case that, that covers the case and then turns it into the stand. And it's so flimsy and so scary to, to actually have running, uh, especially in a production, because if it falls down, you just get completely startled. I don't want to have any of that. So with that one, it does have a touchscreen. That's only a 1080p. I don't know if ViewSonic makes 4K versions, but it's reliable. It does it does the job, and that's usually my uh, that's my go-to when it comes to uh, to portable monitors. 
And a quick reminder, of course, that you can ask questions throughout the uh, first hour. In fact, you don't even have to log into Makana anymore. Uh, we just started putting this out. So this is the askofficehours.com. Um, so the advantage of logging in is that you can vote on questions, you can chat with each other, uh, so you can be kind of a little bit more part of it. But if you just want to ask a question and have us cover that, uh, and you can ask this question anytime. In fact, the question, a couple questions today have already come in from this form. Um, so then we promote them uh, into Makana, where they're still voted on and they're still part of that conversation. Um, but all you have to do is go to askofficehours.com or you can just use this QR code that you see right here. Um, and again, if you're watching this on YouTube and you missed the show, but you still want to ask a question and have it get uh, considered, uh, you can use this any time of the day, uh, 24-7. So, um, and it will fill uh, our little well on the, on the back end, and then we can bring them in uh, during the show. So um, it's a little harder to do it for second hours right now. So it's really general questions that we're looking for right now, but we're working on other solutions that we're just in the test phase right now, but it's working pretty well. Uh, next question. John Filer in Greenfield, Massachusetts is up next. He asks, the new addition of 64 buttons to the Stream Deck app is a game changer. What does the panel think of external additions to touch surfaces to enable more tactile feel for tablets? And he's got a link there. Go ahead, Jeffrey. I was using this last week, the app last week uh, at my remote event, and it was nice because it could match the Stream Deck that I had in there, which was 15 buttons, or I could uh, break it out and do up to 80 buttons. I think the better feature, and this is iOS still only, is the lifetime purchase. Uh, so you don't have to pay a monthly fee anymore, and uh, that allowed me to put it on multiple uh, iOS devices, so I can use it on my phone or I could use it on my iPad easily. Go ahead, Oliver. Obviously, I'm a big fan of touch interfaces. Uh, so the Nemo Live uh, uh, remote control surface, um, and that also shows you why I don't think it's a good idea to put something, you know, tactile on the screen because you lose the um uh the uh, flexibility of, to put anything anywhere on this uh remote control surface and uh for example the uh sliders down here that allow you to uh control uh audio volume and things like that uh are also then not uh, supported but i think if you um if you are into um if you're into tactile feedback, then maybe it's a good idea um, uh, to to add this. But but it's you know it's kind of why why don't you use a real keyboard uh, if you uh, if you want to do that? Go, Jason. It's just a matter of what you're after. Um, proprioception is the way that your body interacts in space. So in this case, having a button that you can push has a specific use case, which is. I can feel it and I know exactly when it's going to push. Um, it loses the dynamics that Oliver was showing, but what it gains is, you know, we all have a lot of buttons in front of us and um, we don't really have to look at them to use them. So it's just, just depends. Next question. Kyle Hammond in Chicago, Illinois wonders, how do I change the default Google account when I have multiple Google accounts that I manage? Uh, go ahead, Jason. Okay. What do you mean by the default Google account? Are you talking about in Chrome talking about or in Chrome? Do, yeah. Okay. Um, the way to do it is to completely murder Chrome and um, log entirely out of the profile or start an entirely separate profile. I, I don't know of any other way to do that. Good, Paul. Yeah. What he said, log out everywhere and then log back in. 
I don't log into anything. <laughs> I just use the, I have, I'm logged into stuff on different pages as different accounts and it's a lot simpler than letting it do it in my browser. That'd be my, my recommendation. Uh, next question. Gordon Lake in Los Angeles, California. Things have seemed quiet on the 2110 front. Will its rollout be a long-term process or should we expect more products soon? Uh, I would expect more products soon. Uh, Blackmagic has obviously started to put dip their toe into 2110, and you're probably going to see a lot of Blackmagic um, stuff coming out with uh, 2110, and that's going to help, I think, make it much more accessible than it has been in the past. Um, I think that there just hasn't been a lot of, it, it is a challenge. Um, it does take you know a lot more networking and so on and so forth, but what, what was really needed was um, somebody who's got a lot, you know, hundreds of thousands of hardware devices that are, you know, that are out there um, that, you have people using them that, that could potentially, um, you know, push people over. So I think we're going to see some more more of that. I'm probably not too far away. Uh, next question. Uh, more comment. This is from Alan Cavito in Richmond, Virginia. I use Makana if I want to ask a question, but I usually watch Office Hours on YouTube. So the new QR code ask question feature is very cool. Well, I'm glad I'm glad it's working out. You know, we're testing it. So definitely if you're in Discord, uh, make sure to uh, go into Discord, like, give us feedback on how it's working for you. We've got a couple, some people on Android are having trouble because it doesn't have a border. So we're going to add that over the weekend. And um, so that, you know, we're, we're getting that kind of feedback. And again, you don't need to use the QR code. It just makes it easy if it's on your TV to do it, um, to pop it in. You can just go to askofficehours.com as well. Um, it'll take you to the same place. Um, but it, but we have found it, it's definitely adding, here's the interesting thing is that we're getting more questions and we're getting a wider diversity of people asking those questions because uh, we've lowered that, that little bit there. Um, we do recommend that you use your first name and last name. You'll get more votes. Uh, next question. Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas. I watched a Netflix show on blue zones where 100-year-olds thrive. The secret? Sitting on the floor and getting up and down all day. Could you do a Zoom meeting <laughs> with participants sitting on the floor? Good, Paul. Yeah, this was a great show. Uh, that's, a, that's a common denominator all over the world in these blue yeah, zones. They, they get up and down off the floor. Oh, we could. I, I think I, I've already passed that that curve. I don't know if I could. I could do that all day. I'd probably be like, okay, enough of this. Let's get let's get a chair. Um, next question. Next question comes from Steve Uroff in Madison, Wisconsin. When is a portable monitor superior to using an iPad, along with macOS native sidecar feature? Go on, Oliver. Well. I Sidecar is one of those things. I always uh, discover new stuff in macOS, even though I'm using Mac since like 1987 or something like that. And uh, it's uh, the amazing, what me, amazes me about Sidecar is how low latency it is. It's really, 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 really fast. And so, um, yeah, so I'm thinking maybe depending, of course, depending on the use case, um, there, there, there might be still advantage of using uh, cheaper uh usb uh portable monitor but uh you know how many devices do i want to carry if i have a macbook and, and my ipad already then why should i take another um uh, external monitor with me and uh you know uh, so this is a this is a great uh, addition to the tool chest so go jeffrey 
Yeah, I totally agree with Oliver, but the the biggest thing, the biggest advantage of using a portable monitor over your iPad is your iPad has other things that you might want to use on it. Or if somebody calls or if somebody texts and all of a sudden you've got a drop down uh, going on there, whereas a portable monitor is completely dedicated. I actually don't use Sidecar. I use Duet because Duet, and I'm not sure if Sidecar has the same function, which I highly doubt, but I can actually take my Kindle Fire and hook it up via Duet and have a secondary monitor on my uh, on my Mac, which is really cool. And of course, they also have the wireless features if you pay for uh, the for the Pro account. But uh, yeah, that's I use, I like Duet a lot. Uh, go ahead, Jason. There are lots of cases where an iPad is too capable, and you actually don't want stuff like. Um, touch. So the answer is when you don't want touch and you want power and HDMI and you want to get it out of the way. Go ahead, Bill. And pure cost. I mean, obviously an iPad is going to run you more than a decent IPS external monitor by USVC or something like that. I have probably, I think I've got one, two, three, four, five different external inexpensive monitors that I use on next to either computers or iPads. And uh, But I always use Sidecar when I take the train and I'm editing or something like that because it's just really integrated and really nice and I like that. Next question. Gordon Lake in Los Angeles, California. Is the small rig... Free Blazer tripod with a 22 pound max load at $400 in the same class as Benro and Manfrotto tripods at the same price points. And he's got a link there to the product. Yeah, I'm, I'm really looking at the small rig. I've got a lot of small small rig uh, equipment, and I I like it. <laughs> so it's it's a it's a really I think they've they've turned out really well. Haven't used the, the this Free Blazer tripod yet, but it does look like a solid. Uh, solution. The big thing that I'm, I'll be looking for is, you know, how that head moves. You know, is it something that that is got stiffness at the very beginning and the end of its move? Uh, that's that's the place where some of the tripods have a hard time at, at the lower costs. Um, and so, how much control do I have, et cetera? I it, it looks like a sturdy thing, and knowing small rig, I think it, it could be very good. Uh, so I'm hoping to test one. I I just got to figure out where to where to get one to test. So we're we're working on that, but uh, we'll we'll get back to you as soon as we we actually get one under a camera. Next question. Craig McFarlane in Boston, Massachusetts. Alex, you mentioned triggering studio lights from your watch. What mechanism are you using? So I have a uh, Eve, and it's just a, it's a, I can't really show it to you, but it's a, it's a, it's a power strip. And the Eve power strip then ties into my home, my home kit. It just sees it. And then I set up a shortcut for it. So I have shortcuts to turn um, things on and off. And so that's the, you know, so I, and, and then I tied that shortcut to, uh, and I'm going to do something very dangerous, which is actually try to run it during the show. Um, but so if I, I have a shortcut that will, um, it's called lights out. And so I, I can turn, you know, just pop it all off. And then my watch, you can kind of see my shadow here, but my, I, see it glow here a little bit. Maybe you can't see my glow, but it, but I'm, I just act. So as I'm walking towards my office, I, um, I hit my watch. And it's, so when I walk in, it's all up. And when I leave my office, I hit it. And I could probably do something that's more proximity based. I can also, you know, do things like just turn off that backlight, you know, if I want to, or, or, um, or turn it back on again. And so, so those are the kind of things that I can do to, you know, when I'm in meetings, a lot of times I turn the backlight off. So I don't look like I'm working as hard as I am. So, uh, so that's, that's another piece of that. Yeah, go ahead, Jason. 
Yeah, if you have the Apple Watch Ultra, you can use that extra button to run any shortcut. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I'm with Alex. The way I do this is just, you know, pay Shlomo studio lights off. And I, I can also just do it remotely. Um, you know, I have a lot of trouble away. with the voice activation. Um, and that has to do with the fact that it's uh, that I have so many devices in one room. When I say, hey, Shlomo, the... All, everything turns on. I think it doesn't know what they to do. They all go it's, crazy. They all go crazy, but there's like 10 of them in here. And so there, there's iPads and there's like six computers and there's a bunch of, you know, my watch and my couple phones and they all just go, what? And and I, it, it doesn't work. <laughs> so, so I have to use tactile yeah. ones. Yeah, no, I designed uh, around that, but yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm totally with you. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael's up next. If you had a small mixer with Dante, uh, for example, like the Yamaha DM3, would you attach it to your DAW via Dante or its native USB interface, which would have the lowest latency? Yeah, go ahead, uh, Jason. Dante. I don't know. I think the native USB interface maybe, but we're talking about like millisecond single digit millisecond differences um so if you're using wireless or you're trying to tie that together maybe but uh i think that the usb might be faster go ahead jeffrey i would say that it depends on your usb i mean if you if you're plugging into usb 2 you're not going to get that that well of uh, especially if you're using multiple channels as opposed to usb 3 and of course if you've got a dock that's in 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 the middle of that that could also cause some extra interference as well next question Gordon Lake in Los Angeles, California is up next. What goes into setting up a Zoom ISO practice breakout room? Would you need a machine for each participant and sync the loop? Yeah, so um, we haven't figured out a way to do this well with uh, one computer. So typically we've been using a computer for each participant. Um, all those participants had to be captured together. Otherwise, they don't. They all talk over top of each other and other things like that. Um, and then the uh, and this is for like twelve. I think that you could probably as you know uh, for twelve. Twelve is what we built the last one for. Uh, and then we do have to turn them all on at the same time. <laughs> so and, and then they they each they each are participants in the they each have to be a participant in that piece. So what we did is we built bots that would all join them as separate individuals because it's not it's us. How do we get six individual? people into the into that breakout into that breakout room so that people can cut with it and uh, we may be pretty close to doing that again just we a couple things we're working on go ahead Oliver yeah just um, because the one in after hours didn't work anymore I had to build one myself and so we uh, added uh, to Memo life the ability to launch Memo life and join a room through the HTTP API which allows me to run um, share scripts um, to launch um, Mimo Life instances, and we've uh, managed to do four um, people or four um, shows per Mac Mini M2 Pro and uh, run that into a Zoom call. And what are you doing? So, How are you doing four? Are you using Mimo Life? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just running multiple instances of Mimo Life. So I've just made copies oh, of it. Mimo Life and then uh, run, uh, run them uh, at the yeah. same time. Oh, that's interesting. That's um, very interesting. Uh, next question. Next one comes to us from Tommy Schantz in St. Paul, Minnesota. Uh, on a new Mac Mini, what apps do I have to load to set it up for an office hours studio setup? Go ahead, Paul. Yeah, Audio Hijack, BeatSheet, uh, Oliver's app, of course, and uh, then uh, Zoom and uh, whatever specific apps for your mic and uh, equipment. Go ahead, Bill. I wondered if you're talking about doing it as the host of the show or just uh, to 
come in remotely as we do. Most of us have simpler setups than that. We just, you know, obviously Zoom needs to be on the machine. Uh, you need to have at least one computer and uh, the Mac Mini will take care of that, but a monitor that you can look at since the Mac Mini doesn't come with one. And a couple of things. I've found that having uh, just some basic, um, like a an ATEM Mini or something like that really helps as a presence coming into the show to be able to switch in content from the outside when that's necessary, and at least a couple of monitors because uh, as a participant in the show, there's a lot of data that comes both ways, and you want to be able to arrange that on your screen so that you comfortably can see everything you need to see as you do the show. But as a participant, that's all you really need. You don't need a lot of external stuff. A lot of us have loopback or, or things like that running in the background to do specific things, but I don't know if that's necessary as opposed to convenient. Go ahead, Jason. Since Bill gave you the clean answer, I'll give you the little bit more elaborate one. A lot of us also have much more elaborate setups than that. So, you know, stack of minis would be, you know, something to run the, the hardware that runs your switcher, something to run the hardware that runs your mixer, something to run the hardware um, that controls the way that you hear things. And then, um, as many video screens as you can possibly get away with. I, that's the long <laughs> and the short of it on my end. Yeah, yeah you know, you know last part. It's one of those things that I, uh, you do, you, t it, you tend to build up. When I'm on, uh, when I'm remote, um, I, I use a much more broken down system, but I'm still using the key things that I, uh, um, you know, that, that I have, just the camera and the little bits and pieces. And I really have very little. I have a web page and I have, and I have, um, I have web, a web page is opened. And I do wish I had more monitors. I may start taking more monitors or at least using my iPads as that um, so that I can spread out a little bit um, for that for that process. I have a right now I'm using a separate iPad for for the Q&A system. So that's that's the one thing that I kind of manage on that end um, to make that actually possible. And then I have the, the general, um, you know, interface as far away as I can. So it, my eyes get close uh, to the camera, at least when I'm on, especially when I'm in, in a hotel room, <laughs> you know, it's, it's something that I have to actually work on there. Um, anyway, yeah, so that's, so those are the things you want to do, but there's not a lot of apps that you need to make it actually run. If you're, if you're just trying to get on to office hours, uh, you know, the, the most important thing is having a good mic, you know, like a good mic, it makes a big difference. And then after that, you're really talking about, you know, better, you know, we, talk about the same things every time we I, we've prepped thousands of people for remote um, contribution and we look at their internet first we want fast internet and I'm wired <laughs> so no wi-fi wi-fi is the devil um, anyway and so uh, no wi-fi uh, so we went we first thing we do is work on the internet um, the next thing that we um, that we work on is uh, their uh, um, their their audio so we need a good mic wired mic into the into the thing and we use mv7s a lot because they're just easy for the end user to use next thing we do is lighting so we want to find good lighting or give them good lighting to do that the next thing is the camera now you'd think the camera was above the lighting but you can fix a lot of cameras with good lighting um it's usually the cheaper cameras just fall apart faster um so uh so anyway that's the that's one thing to kind of consider there um and then finally we start working on the background so those are the big five and and if we get those five in that order um handled it gets progressively better so you get you know, the first three will get you 90% there. Um, so those are the kind of things that we um, actually um, take into account. Um, uh, some quick reminders here today uh, while, we're, uh, while we're getting ready for the second hour. Um, we have, of course, uh, two hours with, we're going to have three days of, um, and I'm just pulling something up here. Uh, we're going to have three days of Q&A um, because of Labor Day, Labor Day here in the United States. I know some of you don't have Labor, <laughs> Labor Day, but we do. And so um, usually it's a good day for us to do Q&A. So we're going to have three days of Q&A, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. S Sunday is more of the 
introspection um, uh, day. So we really talk more about office hours and, and kind of look inward as well as, uh, so if you've got questions about why are we doing this and what is this and you have complaints or concerns or whatever, Sunday is a good day to bring that on. We don't broadcast that. So you probably don't know what we're talking about if you're just watching on YouTube, um, but you can get to it in Zoom. So, um, so Sunday is a good day for that. Um, but um, we'll be broadcasting both on Saturday and Monday um, that we have there. We've got a great week coming up next week. Um, we'll get into that over the weekend. Um, and uh, and so the uh, uh, so that's that's coming up here. Uh, one reminder: I had a great meeting. Uh, we think that NAB could be a pretty big deal for us this time. So so we would uh, uh, highly recommend if you're if you're interested in in being part of either offsite or onsite for NAB or a panelist. Uh, it looks like we're pretty good chance we're going to have some kind of presence on the floor, um, as well as uh, the mobile units that we've used in the past. We had some good meetings recently, <laughs> as early as this morning. <laughs> so, so anyway, so I think that things uh, are looking pretty good there. So I would look at the look for the form that you that we send out in the email, as well as what we put in Discord, um, and you can sign up for that. Um, I think it's going to be really interesting. Of course, we have IBC coverage coming up on the fifteenth and sixteenth. On the fifteenth, it'll be two hours. The two hours before office hours and after hours. Hours, and on the 16th, it, we're taking over. So this on the 16th, office hours will be coming in from IBC. And so that team's building up there. So uh, stay tuned for that. And now uh, we're going about to jump into the second hour. And welcome to the second hour. Uh, it's uh, good to have everybody here. We're going to be talking about NDI workflows, and we have some of the world experts here uh, to talk about it. Of course, Robert um, uh, Musso is someone a lot of people know, technical um, product marketing director at NDI uh, TV and one of the world experts in in uh, NDI. Uh, Lenny Nelson is the studio lead at VizRT Group. Uh, he oversees all of the graphic design and video production for all the internal, external corporate needs. Uh, this includes all the advertising, promotion, and product related imagery, but also things like town halls and training videos and uh, trade shows and other corporate events. Uh, Elias uh, Perunin uh, is uh, the author of Memorable, Profitable, and Virtual, um, and uh, he's the founder of Tractus Events, a Canadian virtual event production company. Uh, he's the author, uh, uh, and again, the author there, um, and he specializes in digital first and virtual events, and um, he is also a programmer and has written a number of NDI utilities, including the NDI MultiView, NDI Bandwidth Tester, and Source Debugger. Uh, Jeff Keithley um, started integrating new tech uh, products uh, uh, over 20 years ago, including NDI. Uh, notable recent projects include implementing large counts of NDI and AWS for virtual speakers like Tony Robbins and sporting events um, and uh, AT, uh, for ATP Media. And that's Jeff Keesley at Pizzazz. Um, and uh, uh, Igor, Igor um, uh, Goyak is from Arlican Players. And we had we had Igor on er, much earlier. So he was he, he had a whole second hour with him. So you know that he's building these incredible complex uh, theater events that are incorporating both NDI and people from all over the world, as well as as in-person theaters. It's really an amazing thing. You can go back and look at that second hour. Uh, Fintan McKiernan uh, is uh, the leading systems integrator for the NDI solutions. Um, and uh, Fintan is also the CEO of Ideal S Systems Singapore. Ideal Systems is the largest broadcast systems integrator in Asia and is the leading NDI systems integrator in Asia as well. And of course, we have our own Oliver Breidenbeck. Um, and Oliver is uh, the co-founder and CEO of Boink Software and makes Memo Live high-end uh, software switcher for the Mac um, that has supported NDI since 2017. And of course, you saw uh, Oliver in the first hour as well. Um, so th these are the experts here. Um, and so it's an incredible uh, 
group and we have so many questions. So for the experts, we're going to open up with one question and then we're going to let the rest of the questions just start flowing in. Uh, I think everybody knew that you were coming. We we're talking about it all week. Um, and so we have this incredible group of people that are going to be able to answer your questions. We have so many questions and we have so many experts that I want I want to tell this the our our viewers our producers to really focus on voting the on the questions that you have there we're probably not going to get to the bottom of the of the uh, of the list so really make sure that you we've ordered those up so that we we can really uh, work through that so um, let's go ahead and uh, jump into that first question which is what is the main thing that a beginner NDI users tend to forget um, uh, to check when they when it comes to their network uh, go ahead Lenny well, I think oftentimes there's a misunderstanding of what NDI is and what NDI does. Um, I fully believe that by, by you know, deploying a proper network switch, that's your first step. Um, you need a proper network switch with a solid black backplane that has plenty of throughput. Um, if, you, if you expect everything to just work everywhere all the time, you need to comprehend that there's still physics involved. You know, you still have a pipe, you still have to shove things through it, right? So um, you just have to really consider what you're trying to do, let's say you have 12 cameras you want to work with, for example, you need some, you need some power there, you know, just like any other regular production would be. I mean, if you were using baseband uh, signal flows at the same time, you would have the same considerations to make. So I fully believe that, you know, a, a, a basic comprehension of how networks were, first of all, is really important, but a good quality network switch, you can't just use something you bought off of Amazon for $50. It's just not going to work. Now, if you have one or two cameras, yes, you'll be fine. You should be fine. Um, but if you try, try to start um, moving 4K around, you start, try to start doing a lot of advanced things, then just like any other production, you have to scale up what your, what your uh, infrastructure is. Go ahead, Jeff. For me, my suggestion is actually really easy. And there's two things you need to know. One, are, are your computers all in the same subnet? Same subnet, same IP scope. So many people just look right over that and they don't understand why does my NDI work? Why does my NDI work? Number two is you have to be able to do math. Just like Lenny said, you need to understand that this many NDI streams from this network adapter is going to have this effect on it. If you go over that, things start breaking apart. So you still have to be able to do math. Go to last. Also good to know if you're, what your existing network looks like. Like if you're just going to plug in NDI sources into an existing network where everything else is running on there, you're most likely going to run into issues. I've plugged NDI sources into customer networks and just took down the whole network because something was configured weird. So know what you're plugging into. And if you can build out separate AV over IP infrastructure, I would. I go ahead, Roberto. So I think one of the important aspects with NDI is that NDI has been developed by computer guys, not by video guys. And so for us, NDI, the concept behind NDI is that you can do everything you do usually with your computer. So it's like having a full... Uh, opportunity to do something like crazy, like copy and paste, you know, sending uh, your video all over your network. But you need to know that NDI, for example, is unicast. And so every time you receive a signal, the transmitter is sending once again the stream. Those are all advantage, you know, because uh, setting up the network and, and setting up an NDI workflow is very easy but you need to know what you are doing. And so 
there is a point where your sender will stop working because you oversubscribe it. And so this is something, uh, as, as the other uh, panelists said, I mean, you need to know what you are doing. And uh, it doesn't mean that you can do everything just because NDI make everything super easy. Uh, go ahead, uh, uh, Fenton. Sorry. Yeah, sure. I, th I think uh, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of co cognizant in the question that says with the beginner uh, uh, setting up an NDI network. I think for anybody setting up an NDI network, um, and this is especially important if you're in this, you know, if, if you're in a, in a live and you know some of our projects here like we do the national football so these are really important things that you have to check on live systems that are being used broadcast to millions of people um it is remember your ndi network if you're using it in a broadcast environment is like broadcast equipment so you know doing things to check to make sure that uh um, because you got a lot of Windows devices uh, in NDI that you don't have in broadcast, right? And uh, and they do weird things like decide to do uh, updates. Uh, so making sure that you disable all anything that you know can decide it wants to do a Windows update on you, stuff like that. You know, not immediately obvious. Everything's working five minutes before, and then you're you suddenly you're in you're into the football match, and then the machine thinks, "Hey, I'm a Windows device. I sudden I want to update myself." Um, yeah, and that hammers you on air. Um, and then similarly, the other thing, if you've got lots of users on a on an NDI network um, and they think, hey, this is a computer, so uh, I'm going to check a bit of email or do a bit of stuff in the back end or something starts to download. So locking down computers, locking down all the devices, it's the, it's the risk of doing everything in computers versus doing everything in, in, in bespoke hardware that you know doesn't have all, all these things going on as well. So um, I think checking all that in advance saves a, saves a bit of egg on the face sometimes, you know? Next question. Next question comes to us from Tommy Chance in St. Paul, Minnesota. What are the most important steps in setting up a mobile NDI broadcast solution with around 10 inputs? What are the gotchas going to be? Go ahead, Elias. I've actually done this. I'll assume you're doing a combination of cameras and maybe some other software sources. Uh, what I would do, if you want to replicate the kind of setup that I have, have a go bag that's got a dedicated router, dedicated switch that's all pre-configured. Keep those settings as pre-configured as possible and make sure you have those machines uh, if you've got laptops or workstations dedicated to that mobile setup, I wouldn't reuse. We've got a number of laptops that are only for our portable NDI setup and nothing else. They're pre-configured. And if you're running on Windows, start looking into using group policy to disable some of those automatic updates. That's what we do on a lot of our systems. Go ahead, Jeff. For me and our, of course, we do a lot of portable production in my other company, Lab Sports. Uh, we start here with the Netgear, the Netgear M4250, because it actually has the NDI profiles already built in for its VLANs. It's dead simple, stupid easy to be able to set up and operate multiple, multiple, multiple feeds. And if you need more, you buy a bigger switch. And whenever you're buying them, this is the one to start off with. If it's only uh, four or five, even 10 cameras uh, through this, this switch would handle it. It's got enough bandwidth in the back plane to be able to do it. It starts at $600, $600, that's it. But it works, that's the key. I go ahead, Oliver. Yeah, so I, I would I would uh, agree um, that uh, the most important thing is to bring your own network. Uh, don't rely on the venue to provide any sort of network. But uh, we did uh, once uh, 
do an event where uh, NDI was really showing its strength, where uh, we were positioned at the uh, complete end of the venue and like a hundred meter away from the stage. And we had to have like three or four cameras on uh, closer to the stage. So we just put a switch on the stage, ran the cables into that switch and had one cable that the venue really had is just one patch cable run from the stage to our uh, setup. And, uh, and that, you know, allowed us to, you know, be set up really, really fast in that and, and not to have to run a lot of cables. And this is, this is, I think the big, biggest advantage for NDI is that you can have one cable to the camera and run both power and control and video over that one cable. Go, Clinton. Yeah, uh, again, another gotcha. This is probably, again, really relating to uh, multi-camera live sports. Uh, if you're out in the field um, and you're you're sending your feeds back, uh, you know, sometimes you, you might have a, a mobile cameraman down on the pitch, uh, maybe using the RF. You might have some of your cameras going into a network um, and you might have maybe another camera potentially, uh, you know, outside the stadium or something like that going on to, uh, bonded cellular and, and then some sort of remote production at, at the back. Um, you know, if you're switching from inside the stadium to outside the stadium, your sync isn't an issue. But if you sync from a, a camera on the pitch through RF and your other cameras are in network, so uh, you know, there's a there's a real kind of you, you got to be very careful uh with with your with your camera synchronization. Uh, it can it can go very skewy very quick. Um, and that uh, it, being a bit odd when the switcher switches to the other view, uh, and you're going back in time, <laughs> you know, it doesn't doesn't have a good look on screen, you know. Igor, uh, I would uh, I would reiterate that uh, everything needs to be pre-configured, uh, preferably in your studio, and checked so that when uh, you're at the venue, you can just plug in a, an internet cable. Another thing that I would highly recommend is a 10 gig uh, card for your computer uh, with an Intel chip, uh, preferably. Uh, those seem to be more reliable. I go, Jeffrey. I did a small production last week in Las Vegas, and I used all NDI for that. I had a PTZ camera. We had a presentation laptop, which was hooked up to a Magewell for the NDI because I don't like to go from NDI from the laptop, and especially if somebody else needed to plug in a different laptop, we could easily do that. Um, so th uh, the big thing is working with whoever is the uh, union shop that's uh, that's doing the back end because the table was actually in the wrong place, and I didn't bring the right Ethernet cables to uh, bring that in. So they had to do a little bit of routing on there. And really quickly for Jeff Keithley, one question on that router. Do you have to plug it into specific ports? So if you have if a camera to port one, camera to port two, you can't mix and match? Uh, it really depends on if if everything. On this, this one specifically, I actually have it labeled out, and it has VLANs for what we do in our sporting world is we do scoring, we do Mark Roberts, which is also our NDI network, and then we have Dante. So this one has three different VLANs that route across it. Uh, we label them because it's nice not to have to dial into the switch and have to worry about what what is this port doing, whatever. Uh, but okay. no, when it comes to NDI, you just plug it in if they're all on the same subnet. So if you're in the same VLAN, then you just plug it into any port. It doesn't mean it has to go into a certain port. Okay, thank Go ahead, you. Igor. 
just one other gotcha that I was thinking about is uh, when you have a uh, Netgear 4250 is what seems like everyone is suggesting. What um, One of the gotchas that I've experienced is when you, uh, somebody said it's one Ethernet cable that does the PoE and and uh, uh, the, uh, the um, video transmission. Uh, sometimes patching it into different kind of bays of uh, of the 4250 uh, is better than plugging everything. For example, if you have 10 cameras, plugging everything into one through 10, uh, the PoE may not have enough power. So splitting that up uh, on the on the 4250 may help. Go ahead, Roberto. Yeah, so there is something that is very important that users know is uh, the evolution of the NDI transfer protocol over the year. You know, the first NDI one was based on TCP, then we moved to uh, UDP with forward error correction, then to uh, multi-TCP and now with the reliable UDP. All those protocols uh, have a different behavior, behavior in the network. Uh, we should, we can say that today we are reliable UDP. We fix tons of issues uh, related to a network switch, especially uh, managing flow control and, and network congestion. So another uh, suggestion is uh, to move to the last version of NDI to use a reliable UDP. Uh, there are known issues, for example, with multi TCP when the sender is 10 gigabit and the receiver is one gigabit. Um, then all the other suggestions are absolutely valid, uh, but it's very important to keep all the equipment updated because, I mean, we are doing a huge effort uh, increasing the stability of the transport protocol. And today with the reliable UDP, I must say that we, we have a really an amazing solution. Next question. Bo Cordell, Charleston, South Carolina is in next. It seems the key to successful NDI is proper network settings. What are the keys to a properly configured NDI network? Go ahead, Jeff. I've always wanted to say this, and I know Bo. And Bo says, whenever we were talking about it, it's like, I don't understand that much about the, the whole IT side, right? And, and it's struggling. And a lot of people in this business I know whenever I was growing up, I, I did not say I wanted to be an IT professional. Uh, we've had to learn new skill sets. And so as you're learning new skill sets, you could either learn it all or you could lean on people that know more than you, which I do. And part of those people are the people like at Netgear that develop all these pre-done profiles and everything for us and embrace that. And the investment that we've made in changing over from everything from we had Cisco switches, it was a nightmare to have to admin them all the time, all the time, all the time. And it was deep. It was it was a uh, command line interface and everything. And then the next after that, we went into, uh, which was an easier way to admin. We did the unifier route, which a lot of people want to jump into that because it's a cheap, easy router and uh, switch network to get into. After that, you figure out the limits. And then that's where we landed in and just bought it all. And now we're a hundred percent in net gear. We've got over a hundred switches deployed to both our clients and our, our own stuff. It just works. So don't, don't try to learn it all, but lean into the people that are working with it and let them do their job. Go Roberto. So, 
Uh, it happened to me many times to see people struggling with NDI network, and then I realized that they was using cheap uh, network equipment. You know, it happened many times. You know, I, I've seen people with $40, $50 network switch. Oh, I have video stuttering. So the suggestion is buy a proper switch, uh, layer two. If you if if your setup requires 16 port, buy a 48. Because you know, more power you have, more will have uh you know com- power in your switcher and, and you will have less issues because you have to take in, in into account that you know with NDI you are moving a huge amount of data. You know, a single NDI stream at 1080 60p is 130 megabit per second. And uh, so if you think about how many, if you start to add cameras and your your production is sending a lot of output, you need to multiply all those numbers for the number of streams that you are generating and you need to have a proper switch. So the first big investment is the switch. Then if you think about SDI, uh, and you remember the cost of an SDI router, uh, a, a one big enough for your production, you will realize that the cost of a big network switch is a fraction of the cost of, a, of an SDI router. So where is the problem? Go to Lance. I'll echo what Jeff and Roberto have been saying, which is you want to invest in that quality hardware for sure. And not just on the switches side, but on your computers as well. Your built-in gigabit Ethernet on a motherboard might be good enough, but you know, is that chip going to scale up when it's being hit under heavy, heavy load? Uh, maybe not. And then the other part is also control. And it goes whether you're building out a brand new NDI network or you're building something for a mobile rig like like I've done for our mobile events, again, you want to have that full control. That's going to make your debugging a heck of a lot easier. And and like said before, lean on the experts. You know, it's not just it's not just the NDI experts, but you know, lean on your IT experts and actually figure out what your network is doing. And if there's hardware out there like the Netgear routers and switches that just work, use those. I've debugged this stuff enough on the IT side to tell you 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 want to just use what works yeah i i know that when i when i design systems i design them to, i look at the spec that's required and i make sure that my system is at about 40% load to do the spec <laughs> for what whatever whatever the client's asking for whatever the design looks like and that's for a single event if i'm going to build something that's going to last for 5 years it's 20% like it's it's at 20% capacity of what they think they're going to do with it for the next 5 years because that's not what's going to happen you know and and i think that the biggest change challenge we get with networking and with computers software computers doing this is that you can ask them to do way more than they can the advantage of hardware is that you can, it just does what it does. <laughs> like, you know, so it's, but so you get the, the flexibility, but you have to, you know, I'm always looking at that CPU usage, the network usage. And if it gets above 60%, I'm worried that I'm going to have a problem like a casket because all it takes is a spike at that point to get me into Never Never Land. Uh, go ahead, Fenton. Yeah, just on the on the network design, uh, I, I think you know something that is easy to overlook and is a is a, is is a common uh, common mistake, and it can it can be hard to error find. Is um, and and the, um, Roberto kind of said a known issue there around flow control. It's really you know 
it, it's the if you're putting multiple different devices on some of those devices have one gig ports some have two and a half gig uh nick cards in 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 the machines some are 10 gig um and there's you know again it's very easy to see uh everything's got an ethernet port you stick in an ethernet cable and everything's going to work great but you know if the you know you get mismatches and you know i've seen and and we've we've experienced where you know uh a couple of 10 gig devices trying to communicate with a with a 1 gig device vice versa and stuff and and the, the flow control doesn't doesn't set it right um so uh, there is a, a need uh, i would say especially you know on the on the very professional side there's a definite need to understand not just your network requirement, but also your I.O. capacity of the devices that you're putting on that network. Go ahead, Oliver. Yeah, so I think um, I have a little this different perspective on NDI because I think it's a perfect technology for a little like the um, uh, same professional markets or um, schools or things like that. And I, I, my experience is that it's actually really easy uh, to get started using NDI, uh, as long as you don't uh, expect to have hundreds of sources in full NDI. Um, if you have like three, four, five, six cameras and NDIHX, um, you know, it's it's pretty easy to run um, a net or to create a network that can handle that because the data rates are not that high. And um, if you uh, get a little, you know, router that has all the DHCP and stuff set up, then um, it's it's pretty easy to 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 get started with with NDI and uh, uh, learn your way around things. And uh, you will run into these issues when you scale it up to, you know, bigger things. But uh, you know, in the in the in the semi-professional market, it's it's really easy. And now, uh, with you know, a lot of cheaper cameras coming on where, uh, you know, NDI camera is like 600 bucks or even less. Right. Um, they, you know, it's, it's, it's even for home, I, I'm running my whole um, home studio on NDI because it's much, much easier to use than um, plugging in HDMI cables or mm -hmm. SDI cables into an ATEM switcher or whatever. Um, I just have the devices I need. I just put them on my network, and I can right. access them from my from my software switcher, and that's um, pretty easy. I don't have any fancy net 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 routers here. I just use a standard um, uh, ubiquity network uh, thing, uh, and and, uh, and that works. And uh, yeah, Igor. Uh, yeah, one one other thing uh, to remember is it's not just about the sources; it's about uh, the subscribers as well. So if you're uh, if you are subscribing more than four or five um, uh, monitors, for example, that are that have subscribed to a camera feed uh, times 130 megabits per second. Uh, you're going to be running close to uh, the capacity there. So uh, if, if you need more subscribers uh, to the feed, you may want to think about multicast as well. Go ahead, Finn. Yeah, uh, this is just a, a comment that um, really responded to Oliver, where he was saying this is the NDI technology is great for, for people coming in. Uh, you know, I just want to make sure that you know because uh, we see it the other way. We 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 see it as NDI as is great in Asia because it's cheap and Asia is a cheap market. Uh, but we do. We, I I'm not sure globally what the biggest NDI network is, 
But we've got a pretty good feeling that the system uh, that we put in Beijing for the national broadcaster of China is running 300 NDI streams 24-7 and has been for a year or more at this stage. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, and, and the reason I say this is because there's a lot of people, oh, you know, NDI uh, network problems when you plug in lots, you know, I'm, I'm, you know we're saying that ah, plug in 300 just if you get you do your calculations right. You know, and and do your network design right. There isn't an issue. So, it, the point being, it's not NDI that's causing the problem. Um, it's your math. Next question. Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida is up next. How would you diagram an NDI workflow for a live staged event with multiple cameras, roll-ins, and IMAG monitors for the audience? Your alliance. The diagramming is somewhat similar to what you'd be doing in a traditional SDI workflow, but you're go instead of thinking about, say, a unidirectional path where you've got, you know, your camera going into your main video switcher, you're going to be thinking about network paths where you're going to be running your Ethernet cables. And that can be a bidirect that's a bidirectional link. Like for example, in our mobile setups, you know, we'll have a studio monitor computer hooked up to all the HDMI's, HDMI ins in the room and we're thinking about where is our Ethernet path going throughout the room. We're just running Ethernet cables everywhere. And so sometimes we might be sending a signal down that way, sometimes might be receiving a signal. The other part you'll think about is where are you going to be putting your switches if you're going to be running, say, more than 300-ish feet of Ethernet or if you're starting to, at that point, you might want to start thinking about optical. I've done I've done those those long runs. We had an event recently where we did we ran 750 feet worth of ethernet from one end of our city park to the other and just bridged a bunch of switches together. That was fun. I'd rather use fiber for that. But you're going to be thinking about where's your ethernet run going to be and if you've got switches throughout, where are they going to be positioned? Go to Oliver. Yeah, I I I think I'd like to point out that uh, the 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 really magic thing is that you can have like a switch somewhere where it concentrates like three or four sources, runs one cable to the next switch. And so the, the, the idea that you can use a network instead of just running cables from your, um, uh, BNC uh, things to everything, um, that is, that is really, uh, the magic, um, that, uh, allows you to run really, uh, really good setups. Good, Fenton. Um, network diagrams for NDI, the the real magic one, and uh, it, you know, very product specific. This is is about Sienna uh, um, and the, the Sienna environment, where you can create the NDI workflows in a WYSIWYG editor um, in a live environment. So you know, it, it's it's basically like Visio, but you can you, you, it, the whole thing is live. So by the time you've actually created a diagram that's it you're up and you can just drag and drop your components in we've done this we've presented this to lots of people on zoom especially during uh, covid when we couldn't move and we actually built uh in the in the ndi we built the workflow and they go okay great and how long would it take to build that you actually build that in the real world and go that it's built you know and you know and we'll give them a, an ip address and then people falling off their chairs it's <laughs> it's, it's it's wonderful so uh, there is magic in ndi especially around around that uh, if you're in the in the cloud ndi yeah igor uh yeah just one other thing uh if you're using imag uh i would suggest doing 60 frames per second uh we've done imag uh with ndi it works fine uh just at 60 1080 60 or 720 60 um 
And also, if you're planning to run uh, cables, Ethernet cables that are RJ45s that are longer than 100 feet, I would not use PoE. I would plug in the camera. That's great. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Next question. Adrian Albeck in Brisbane, Australia. When using Teams and a document is shared, is it possible to keep seeing the presenter on an NDI output? So, in effect, not seeing the shared content. Go ahead, Lenny. Okay, when you're using Teams and NDI, if uh, your networking or your your uh, IT administration has uh, enabled the NDI output, what Teams does is it sends a signal for everything, basically. So every person on that call is now a source that you can use to pull into your switcher or however you'd like to do that. Um, but the shared screen is also a separate source. So, uh, for example, if you have a call with three people plus the shared source or plus the uh, uh, shared document, so that's four sources, plus it does what's called an active speaker source. So when you go into your, your NDI um, you know, video monitor or whatever, or your studio monitor, what you'll see is the computer that's hosting the uh, Teams call and then underneath that, you'll see five or six sources for the, the individual callers, plus the shared document, plus what's called the active speaker feed, which does kind of like switching like, like you'd see on a Zoom call or something like that. Next question. Next one comes from Claudio Lagari in Rome. Uh, are there some training paths you'd suggest to start a strong base knowledge in the video IP workflow system from the basic network side and for the production side? Good, Roberto. Can't hear you. Sorry. Okay. Uh, so around the web, there are a lot of uh, information about how to set up an NDI network. Uh, we are investing a lot on documentation. Uh, next week, we will publish the first NDI white paper uh, with a lot of very interesting information in it. And uh, yeah, I mean, uh, this is one of our mission, you know, to to really deliver and share knowledge about NDI, NDI infrastructure, or NDI production. This and is happening soon. Absolutely. That's great. Uh, and a uh, quick reminder to really focus on voting on the questions. We have way more questions and we're going through them at a pace that we will not get to the bottom. So uh, if you uh, if you um, look at those questions, this is, incre this is a global, a global uh, get together talking about NDI. I just want to kind of point out that Jeff is coming in from Texas. Uh, Roberto is coming in from Italy. Elias is coming in from Canada. Uh, uh, Igor is coming from Boston. Uh, Finton's coming from Singapore. Um, and uh, Oliver is coming in from Munich, uh, from Germany. And uh, so it is a truly a, a global uh, get together here, an incredible um, brainstorm, you know, place to brainstorm about this. And so we highly recommend uh, taking advantage of it. But right now, what I would say is vote on the questions uh, to um, to make sure that we get to cover the ones that are most important to you. Uh, next question. Tlaloc Lopez Waterman in Galisteo, New Mexico. When should one use an NDI discovery server? Go ahead, Elias. One application would be as if you're in the cloud and for some reason, uh, multicast DNS, MDNS is disabled for some reason, or you're on an on-prem network, you don't have full control over it. Again, MDNS is disabled. For some of our cloud-based productions where we're in Microsoft Azure, we do not have multicast available to us without an extra product. So we'll use Discovery Server then so we can find all the sources on our uh, virtual network. Go, Jeff. 
I was going to lead off with in the cloud. You always need to use it pretty much just as Elias said. Uh, but there are also times on the ground that on-prem that are much much easier to implement a discovery server or redundant discovery server, so larger broadcast facilities, uh, even our mobile OB trucks, we run it. Uh, so it just depends on your needs. I would, there's not a specific number of sources that you would say, oh, I need it. But once you use a discovery server and have it implemented, it does make your life a lot easier. It's more reliable. Uh, go ahead, Roberto. Yeah. Uh... Yes, what we have done with Discovery Server is really to avoid issues generated by MDNS uh, discovery. So there are there are situations where, for example, you have a large number of of NDI source, and so the discovery it takes a lot of time. You know, if you have a several networks, which if your network is, is complex, um, then with, with the discovery server, everything is much faster and much reliable. Then today we support multiple discovery server. And, uh, and so you can have a main and backup or you can have a discovery server running in different network. And so if your system is connected to different subnet, then with multiple discovery server, you can discover a source in different, in different subnet. But the other very important feature is that with Discovery Server, you can control which network will be used by NDI. So if in your system you have a simultaneously an NDI network and a Dante network, for example, and you don't want NDI to use the Dante network, the best way to do it is using the Discovery Server. Because when you, when your sender is... is a, is set up with Discovery Server is not sending any more MDNS information. And so other computer in the Dante network cannot simply discover your system. And so it is probably the best solution to control your NDI network. Go ahead, Jeffrey. Yeah, I, I think Roberto just answered that question that I had because it was I was really concerned about NDI, Dante, other IP protocols coming yep. in, or if somebody took their desktop and uh, put on NDI software, if that would affect that, or if that would be able to find that. Next question. Next one comes to us from Bo Cordell again in Charleston, South Carolina. Once the NDI network is configured properly, how do you monitor the health of the network, and where do you begin when troubleshooting networking issues? I uh, go ahead, Jeff. There's a tool available from uh, NDI and New Tech called the NDI Analysis. It, it's a command line interface. Uh, it's a little geeky, but it's a lot of geeky. I, I'm not going to lie. It's a lot of geeky. It's not for the timid. Uh, the guys at Bird Dog, who are a uh, developer also uh, with NDI, uh, one of the probably bigger uh, camera and also adapter developers, uh, they have a product called Dymo yeah, or Dino. And that is also basically a GUI of the NDI analysis tool. has a lot of great information. I go to Elias. I'll do a shameless plug here. I've One of the reasons I got into doing some NDI software development was to troubleshoot some issues on our own networks. So I built, uh, for the MDNS side, I've got to discover a debugger tool list, not just, N, not, not just NDI, but any other MDNS going on on the network, source browser, I use that to figure out if I've got frame delays or frame drops and is it coming from the camera itself 
or is it something on the receiver side? And then I've also got a, a rudimentary bandwidth tool to see how much bandwidth a device is using in unicast mode. So those are great tools. And if you want to get really geeky, you can break out tools like Wireshark to see actual raw packets going across the LAN. That can take up a lot of resources, though. Igor? Uh, yeah, I also use uh, Burdock Dino. I also uh, use, there is a tool uh, on the Netgear 4250 um, uh, GUI interface uh, that has uh, ability to track the packets and see if there's anything that's lost. Uh, Elias, I'm really interested in, uh, in what you've developed and how, where can we find it? Where do people find that, that software? They can find it by looking up, uh, by going to tractiseventscom slash tools. And it's also available if you look up Elias Prunin Gumroad. That's where it's, uh, that's where they're available. Free to download, by the way. That's great. Awesome. Thank you. Roberto. Yeah. So what you need to look for is uh, if the frame are coming on time. So if you send a 1080 every frame is 16 milliseconds. And so all those tools at the end of the day are helping you to define if, you know, those frames are coming at the right timing. Then debugging the reason why are not coming in the right timing uh, is much more on the network side that, you know, it, or you have, a, you have something broken in your sender, but usually is, uh, is something in the network that is, you know, fluctuating this, uh, is, is jittering this, this, uh, flow. Good, good, Fenton. Yeah, I mean, just uh, this is not just about the network; it's about your kind of video analysis. So th there's tools out there. There's uh, vector scopes and stuff in Siena, um, and they're great because they're cloud-based, and I can send you a link so you know somebody else can actually check it remotely somewhere else. All this sort of stuff, um, and uh, you know, in in the for the more traditional broadcasters. Uh, you know, you can get you can get tools now like a broadcast monitor that's NDI. So uh, SWIT out of China released one last year, um, and so I think the point here is there, there's new stuff coming into the market the whole time in this space. So that the the tools at hand um, or the tool set available is getting bigger, and I I um, uh, I hear rumors that uh, Azure um, are going to be bringing out an NDI version of their uh, HDR image analyzer as well and launching it at uh, uh, IBC. So I guess uh, Amsterdam, there's going to be a, a plethora of uh, of new uh, product releases uh, in, in the NDI space. And I think that for me and that for my customers is a key uh, to go to, you know, the, there's the, the, the pace of new products coming into NDI um, and the investment in in the R and D into NDI makes it a much better place where we are telling our investors it's good to go and build stuff because you're building into what a, a better future, you know. So um, yeah, the, yeah, keep keep an eye at IBC. I'd say it, it does sound like IBC. I've been talking to a couple of vendors. It does sound like IBC is being pretty busy. Like it's more busy than normal. Normally you see a couple updates, but it sounds like a lot of companies are going to be talking about new things at IBC. Yeah, so, I, I, I'm, I'm, my guess is it'll it'll be uh, NDI and AI are going to be <laughs> the, 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 and cloud, and that's that's it. And it, anything else will be tumbleweed. There's some hardware I think coming out. Uh, next question. 
Matthias Hutila in uh, Helsinki, Finland is up next to build 10 plus input production system with existing Dante workflow for audio. And you can choose between SDI and NDI networks based workflows. What to consider? How about future proofing? Either or can hardware be used together? Please discuss. Good, Jeff. I'll keep this simple because that's a very long and drawn out question to, to get an answer to that. Uh, right tool for the right job. That's that's my my saying always. Right tool for the right job. If you have a ten foot uh, ten foot run or even a fifty foot run that you need to just hire uh, put a camera into a switcher, just do an SDI. If it was simple. If it works, it works. But if you have more elaborate needs and you if you're talking about future proofing, SDI is not the future. It's the past. So go ahead and dive right in. Go into NDI and have the flexibility. NDI is going to be or a over IP network. Over IP is the future. Anything with a RJ45 jack or whatever new jack they come out, uh, that that's going to be the future. It's not going to be SDI. So that's what you're talking about, future-proofing. That's the best. Yeah, go ahead, uh, Roberto. Yeah, so it's hard to add something more than what Jeff said, um, except that, yeah, this is the future. And uh, and uh, what we are trying to do with NDI is not to replicate the old uh, SDI or even, I mean, if we think about SDI is replicating the old composite signal workflow. And so we are breaking everything. This is completely different. NDI is completely different. Uh, next question. David Brady out of New York City is up next. David says, what are some of the panelists must-have gadgets to get to and from copper vis-a-vis NDI? Go ahead, Oliver. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the Majorel stuff. Uh, I, and and the most important thing, I think, is the uh, HDMI grab-up. Um, it's the pro, I, I think it's called the Majorel Pro Convert HDMI um, that has an HDMI through um loop and uh, captures anything that goes through that uh hdmi cable so you can plug it in between a you know uh, uh, a, a presenter laptop with the powerpoint mm-hmm. and uh the projector and so and and easily capture uh the slides uh directly from uh before they go anywhere else and that is uh i think for me the most important one good lenny so I have access to a lot of TriCaster systems here at the office. So um, I use those all over the place. Basically, my goal is just get it into NDI, get it on the network, and then I can start using it, right? But we also take a lot of these uh, converters like this. There's many manufacturers out there that make them. Uh, this is the new tech Spark. Um, it's our 12G uh, SDI. Um, so, but there are, like I said, many, many manufacturers out there making similar devices, but they are you know, they're just this nice little connector endpoint connector where I can say, okay, this camera's over here. Uh, I could run a 50 foot, you know, uh, 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 SDI cable if I wanted to, or I could plug it into this and then I get a little bit more flexibility with how I'm doing things. And also, you know, I'll take an extra, you know, PTZ camera or something like that with me whenever I go to places, because inevitably somebody wants another camera somewhere else. And those are really, really fast to deploy because they're POE um, and everything just happens really quick. But uh, yeah, the, any of these, these type of hardware converters are, are, Fantastic. Go, Jeff. Keep it simple. My mage wells are my go-to now, without a doubt. Um, I keep one in my backpack, literally, just in case. Go to Elias. 
Mage wells are awesome. I'll echo that. I've also used the bird dog stuff. They're pretty good as well. And just also keep in mind that these hardware converters, they're going to be running at a very low level. So your lag and latency is going to be minimal. Next question. Al, uh, Andy Kokendorfer is having some fun with us. Uh, Vieira, Florida. What would you tell Alex to convince him that NDI is a reliably reliable workflow? Code Lenny. <laughs> okay. I know I'm stepping in front of a bus here, but um, what I'll say is... I'm not driving is, a bus today. <laughs> what I'll say is I, uh, too, have been a traditional cables work awesome workflow guy um, for years and years and years. I mean, I've been video producing for almost 30 years now. Well, maybe a little less than that. But... Um, when I started using NDI, what I realized is I got a lot more flexibility. I got a lot more things I could do without having to deploy specialized hardware. Um, and once you start doing that a little bit, because, you know, let's just say you need another multi-viewer. Okay, that's pretty easy to do. Uh, you need to move a, a signal across the network, pretty, you know, pl plug in one of those converters, and all of a sudden you just expanded your capabilities. Um, yes, you do... Um, sacrifice or you, you do compromise a little bit by introducing a little bit of compression sometimes. Um, but what I do basically for my main workflows is, uh, especially in our studio, those cameras are still generally um, wired by SDI, cable by, by SDI uh, into our switcher. But then just there's so many things I can do it. And I will say one additional thing, um, traditional cables cannot get up to the cloud. So Whenever we start considering advanced workflows like that, we need some type of IP protocol. And NDI has just been, you know, very, very reliable for what we're trying to do. Yeah, and I think that my my day job is under is what I would say is extremely ultra low latency. So not ultra low, ultra low is cute, but I'm trying to do round trips across the country under 75 milliseconds. You know, so so I'm you know I'm I'm at like we're pulling pieces of hardware out of baseband hardware out of the system so that we can reduce the load by five or six milliseconds. You know, like that's the kind of stuff that I do on a daily basis is work on those things. So my sensitivity towards things is, is largely dealt, is largely managed because that's also running up to, um, uh, up to 4k 120. <laughs> so, so I, so I, I have a different, my, my world is a very different thing of what I do on a day-to-day -day basis. It's hard to put into wires, any, any kind of wires. Uh, go ahead, Elias. One of the biggest things I keep in mind is NDI has come a very long way, even since like 2019, 2020. The reliability is much better. We've got, there's a ecosystem of tools that get better on a daily basis, not just mine, but the tools everybody else makes, Sienna, Bird, Dog. And it's, and the, and if you're choosing quality hardware, it's going to be a reliable ecosystem, in my opinion. I mean, it's just like in the old analog days, you could get bad hardware and, it wouldn't work very well, right? Yeah, 100%. Roberto? Um, so we estimate to have uh, something like 4 million of users from uh, single user to big broadcaster. I think those numbers are saying the truth. <laughs> there you go. Absolutely. Uh, go ahead, Jeff. Uh, I happen to know this company we worked with in the past that we've used uh, reliably, NDI across the place called Pikes Peak for a race 
thing yeah. that we did there. Well, uh, the funny thing is, is that what people don't know is that our company is split because I, yeah. the stuff that that uh, that the owner uses is all NDI. So it's the comp as own I know, we use a ton of NDI. Uh, so one one production is all one set of productions is all all NDI. My stuff because of some of the requirements that I have is all baseband. <laughs> and so and so and and uh, so, but it's a very but it's a but it's two different worlds that we kind of live in. So I, I and I. I'm always watching the worlds, you know, like uh, and watching how that goes. And so, but but for what I do, it's very it'd be very hard for me to uh, put it even into 2110. Um, go ahead, Finton. Um, quick one on this. So there's two different sets of people that you have to convince about NDI in in our world. So there's the 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 corporate people who want to create video content and stream it who aren't broadcasters, and they're really easy because they just. You show them stuff that works and, and, and they're much less suspicious, right? The other team of people are the traditional broadcasters, right? So what I have on the screen here is a list uh, of you know pretty decent sized NDI systems that we that we've built and delivered. But you'll see here TV news studios. And these are these are traditional broadcasters. TVS is a is a, a national broadcaster in uh, Malaysia. CNBC is even known outside of Singapore, I believe. You, you might even know it in America, right? So the funny thing about the CNBC guys is we walked them into uh, iFast, which is a, a fintech company who we built a studio for. And we walked a couple of guys from CNBC, uh, and they wanted to see this studio that had no SDI and that had wall boxes that didn't have SDI. And they walked around the studio and they said, there's no SDI. And I said, it doesn't need SDI. It's all NDI. And they go, we didn't think that was possible. And they turned around and said, give us one of those. So we built an NDI studio. Now it's for the social media. It's a backup for their main studio. But we built one in, in Singapore. And then they liked it so much. I said, actually, will you give us another one? And uh, we built it in London. So when the people who know a lot about broadcast walk in and see it and see and believe in it and then, and then start ordering them and then reordering them, then I think that's when you start to convince Alex that well, NDI has, about, has a reason there, but there's a missing part, Alex, and I can see cameras behind it, right? This is the, this is the, this is the bit, the 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 bit where we cross the chasm, right? This is the game changer in NDI will be when somebody comes out and gives me uh, an ENG camera, a sports camera with detachable lenses that I can have NDI rather than NDI converters. The NDI converters are great, bird dog. You can put them on. They even have a little tally light on them. That's all good, but you're not you don't get the full picture. No no pun intended. You're not using the control in the NDI. You're not doing all that sort of stuff. So when that happens, and and I've been plaguing, I went to the president of Ikigami, Japanese guy. I said, just shave off all those SDI outputs and and, and put NDI. And I said, even if you don't build it, I said, put it in a glass block, uh, a glass box at NAB and tell them it's an NDI camera and see how many people order it, pre-order it, and then you'll go well, and build it. And I think I think that they I think that you have to kind of point. I know it'll sound odd for an NDI discussion, but you have to kind of point them towards where Black Magic's going because that's what Black Magic's doing, except on twenty one ten, where you can control the cameras. You're just running Ethernet to them. You're doing all the things that you're doing there, and and they are going to, you know, the, the camera, camera manufacturers have to pay really close attention to what Black Magic's doing because they're when, they ha own the whole system, so they can fix both ends um, more effectively. And that's where that's the hardest part is having a unified infrastructure versus a fragmented infrastructure. Yeah, Alex. 2110 is lovely, right? And we built a huge all IP 2110 studio for Al Arabi in the Middle East. Yeah. But not everybody sitting on giant oil wells that can afford 2110. Oh, yeah. So no, no. The, I'm, I'm just, the countries that I'm don't 
saying that I'm not saying that they should use that. I'm saying that they have to pay attention to the fact that there are there are companies coming out building a unified Ethernet based structure, you know, and that that the folks that I I agree with you that the the 2110, I I believe the new FR sevens from Sony are NDI as well. They support NDI as well. I'd like to check because you know JVC are saying that Panasonic, but then you you go and you read the specs and say NDI HX because they're already doing MPEG four and it's easy for them to do HX. So full NDI, edge of the cameras, please, if there's any camera is, people listening. Is, is uh, FR7s, or, or the, is that HX? Is that, it's, it's HX, yes, it's, it's not. It's, it's not HX. Okay. So okay. it's nice, it's a, step in, it's a step in the right direction, but the, right. na- the native N- N- NDIs, but just a quick one on the, on the 2110, and uh, because it, not everybody is, that I speak to understands why NDI is so cost-effective. So in a in a scenario where we did a, a multi-stadium, so five stadiums for all the national uh, premiership football in Singapore, where we did it in NDI rather than 2110, one of the major cost savings is just being able to use Netgear switches at three or four thousand dollars instead of a Cisco switch or or, or a Arista switch right. uh, at at forty fifty thousand dollars. You know, and when you start buying ten ten of those, your savings are, are you know mount up hugely. And it's you know it's not immediately apparent. You really go, oh, you know, I got an expensive switch. Different people have a different idea of an expensive switch. And you know, look, you know, Arista Networks, fantastic stuff. Andy Beckerstein, he's a billionaire. I mean, he 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 launched Google. He doesn't need the money. So you know, get the get the switches cheaper and uh, and do NDI rather than twenty one ten. Go ahead, Roberto. There's another aspect using NDI that is really unbelievable. So NDI is one of the is probably the only video over IP technology for video that can be you know, manage by software. So I don't need any hardware to create an NDI workflow. And so if I think about the broadcaster, you know, everybody that produces video make money by the number of output. And so uh, imagine that I'm doing a live production for a basketball game and uh, in my main output that is going broadcast, I cannot show some logo, you know, some brand. But then I want to show the brand and I have an agreement with, I don't know, some brand for um, Facebook. And then I need a different output. And then I have another agreement to show another logo. And right. I need a different output for, you know, the big LED screen in inside the venue. Now, if I use hardware, is an IMER. Either I have a big, a giant vision mixer and the guy is very smart switching all those output. Or I just use software-based mixer, and then I have different people in the network that are switching, uh, adding more output to the show. So this is something really magic in NDI, because this can be done just by software application. This is a big, big advantage. Next question. Next one comes from Tlaloc Lopez Waterman in Galisteo, New Mexico. When there is no NDI receiver active, is the bandwidth utilized or does bandwidth utilization only start when a receiver is started? Uh, go ahead, Lenny. Uh, quick answer. It only, uh, it's only transmitted when something's looking for it. Um, if you uh, just start, for example, uh, NDI test patterns as an app on your, your uh, local laptop and go to another system and don't 
startup uh, uh, studio monitor to look at it, no data is being transmitted other than a little bit of MDNS data to uh, let it know that it's out there. So if something does look for it, it'll say, oh, I'm here. Go ahead, Elias. Yep, what, Len, what Lenny said pretty much, if there's no receiver set up, there's no bandwidth being used or the, there's minimal, minimal bandwidth for MDNS. Go to Roberta. Yeah, there's another aspect in NDI that, I mean, few people know is, is the proxy. So is so this is very important too. Um, in there are software application or application that are able to use this proxy. So basically, an NDI sender can send the two different stream: the full bandwidth and the proxy stream. And so, if you if your your software application has been built supporting the proxy, what you can do you can use the high bandwidth, the full bandwidth when a source is on air, so is acti actively in an output. Or if you want just to preview in a multi-viewer, you receive the proxy. And so this is the reason why, I mean, software application can receive a lot of NDI stream, even more than the, the network capacity, because the reality is that only the one that are actively using an output are coming in, in high bandwidth. All the other are proxies. So the combination of the fact that a sender in, is not sending any output if it's not subscribed by a receiver and the proxy, uh, this is another aspect that makes NDI very efficient in the network usage. What an incredible hour. And we got about a third through the questions. <laughs> so I, I think we have to figure out a way to have you all come on regularly, uh, you know, maybe once a month or every quarter or whatever, re, whatever uh, cadence the, the experts here are willing to, to join our show. Uh, that was an incredibly dense hour of just really, really great protein. Um, and I just think that it's so fantastic to have all of you here. Uh, Jeff, Roberto, Elias, Igor, Finton, and Oliver, thank you so much for joining us here. Uh, it's just an incredible, incredible hour. Um, this is kind of when I dream of what office hours looks like, these kind of hours where we have a bunch of experts that can answer all these questions and we have a lot of great questions and they're all coming in. Um, I just think we learn faster because it's driven by real, real world problems and we have people who have real life experience and really understand this. So hopefully we'll be able to get you to come back on again with us because just such an incredible, incredible hour. So thank you so much for your time. Um, thanks to all of the, the producers who asked all these great questions. I'm sorry we didn't get to all of them, but it was a lot of them and there was a lot of interest and we chose consciously not to try to rush through them, just to let the experts kind of work through those works through those things. And so we really appreciate all the questions. Again, keep those questions in your head. Um, we're going to, we're going to, uh, we're going to get, we're going to get everybody to come back and do this again uh, as regularly as, as they're willing to. Um, and, uh, and we'll just keep moving down that path. Um, thank you to the, uh, the the panelists, obviously the guests that we had here, but also the panelists for the first hour. We really appreciate everybody's uh, contribution to the show. We can't do the show without you. And um, and thanks to the incredible team. This is not a standard Zoom. This is there is a lot of hardware and software and development and custom pieces that are put together. We've got a great development team building this. Um, we've got a great management team that try, figures out how to get all these people ready to go uh, and and everyone ready to ready to do these shows. Figuring out what we're going to do every single day. Uh, and then uh, and we have of course this incredible team putting these together, cutting the show and actually doing this during the show. So we really appreciate everyone's contribution to making this possible. 
travels. Just really a uh, fantastic hour. Uh, we traveled uh, 82,000 miles today in the Tlaloc Traversal. That's 133,000 kilometers. And that is more than 655 million bananas for scale. All right, let's go ahead and jump into After Hours. That was great. Well Thank done. You, yeah. Really, really Thank you. That was Very fun. Enjoyable. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So we'll we'll, uh, we'll work with the team and find, we'll you we'll probably reach out to all of you to figure out what uh, um, you know how often we can <laughs> we can track you on. But uh, I think that if people start to know that we're going to do something like this once a month or once a quarter, it'll get even more intense. The number of viewers and questions and everything else. So, um, but, cool. uh, thanks. And a hands on as well. Love to do that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Anyway, it's good. All Thank right. you very much. Yeah, absolutely. Anybody will be able to IBC, stop by and say hello. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> will do. Yes, Lenny. Uh, that's, that's stopping by at BizRT. Where yeah. are you at BizRT? Where are you? Uh, hall 10, right up. So if you go in, go that's left, so go up the escalator, we'll be right there. Just keep asking <laughs> questions. Like the, the, the rye is like this just maze of, of, of yeah. things. I never know where I am. Um, it is. Yeah. Same well. I think IKEA designed it. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Somebody <laughs> Somebody, I've I, lost I, think, in holes I just there. think that they enjoyed a lot of Amsterdam when they when they uh, when they when they were trying to figure this design out. All right, thanks, everybody. Right. See you later. Thank you. Hey, Lenny. Lenny, let's bye, uh, let's talk because I'll be okay. at IBC. Thank you. Thanks. Right, swing by. Say hello. <laughs>